First Peter chapter two. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn to First Peter chapter two. We are continuing in our series through First Peter. Uh, some of you may or may not know that uh, uh, one of the churches that we've planted is a church called Restoration out on the north side of the city um, in the neighborhood of North Center. And Debs and I had the opportunity to go and minister there um, the week after their first birthday celebration. And uh, Hugh actually, Hugh who leads the church, actually stole one of my introductions when we have friends who minister at church in the city. What we like to do is to get their spouse to take a minute or two to introduce the person speaking. And so that Sunday morning that we were at Restoration, Hugh invited Debs and I up and gave Debs the mic and asked her to introduce me. The problem with that was we had had a terrible fight that morning on the way to church. <laughs> and um, we had hoped to restore on the way to church, but unfortunately, Restoration is only five minutes from where we live. <laughs> Um, so by the time we got there, we ended up driving around the block two or three times and hoped to, re- re- to restore then. We were going to restoration, but we didn't. Uh, so we uh, drove around the block a couple times. It didn't happen. Debs was running late for worship. So I dropped her off and, and then drove off for about 30 minutes to clear my head and to clear my heart, uh, intending to reconcile with her prior to the meeting starting. But worship practice carried on until one minute before they started. So worship starts, Hugh invites us up, Debs and I haven't had a chance to restore or reconcile, and she's given the microphone to introduce me. And to her eternal credit, she spoke lovingly and glowingly uh, of me. But the whole way through her introduction of me, I couldn't help but think, if only you knew. If only you knew what we had, what the fight that we had had that morning. And I was, I was humbled, but to be honest, I was more embarrassed by the fact that Debs was, was speaking so, so glowingly of me. I think sometimes when the pressure is on, I think sometimes when situations feel overwhelming, I think sometimes when we are, find ourselves in situations where the opposition is great and we don't respond in the way that we should, I think sometimes that's how we feel when we read Scripture especially those passages of Scripture which describe how God views us. God, surely you know the kind of week that I've had. Surely you've, you've seen my response to these situations. Lord, how can you speak of me in this particular way? And I think at times we feel embarrassed that God views us in the way that he does. And the passage that we're going to look at today, uh, the, the last two verses of that passage, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, are one of those passages of Scripture that I have some of the most incredible declarations about how God views us. I want us to read those verses together. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. That's the series title that we have given to our journey through 1 Peter. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. I love verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. But the reality is we have to ask ourselves, do we always feel like royalty when we come face to face with personal trials or with, or with hardship? And in, in those moments, we face the reality of our shortcomings or our failures. 
just like the morning I had had a couple of weeks ago on the way towards Hugh and Vanessa's church. Do we always feel close to God and do we feel like we belong to him when we are called to a faith journey and and sometimes the things that God asks us to do in all reality feel difficult or, or feel unlikely but at times even feel impossible and we know that God is calling us to a faith response but our faith sometimes feels so short, so lacking. Do we feel like we belong to God in those moments? Most of you know that as a church, we are on this faith venture to to find a building that we can call home, that one that is ours. And this has been an incredible adventure for us as a church, but to be honest, at times, I felt ashamed at my lack of faith. I felt overwhelmed at times, not not knowing how God is going to bring breakthrough. How do we stand secure and sure when things around us in our city or in our nation leave us shaken and unsettled? And we know that the people at work, the people that we work with, or the people in our families who don't know Jesus are looking at our response and looking at how we, how we respond to these particular situations. I said this a couple weeks ago when I introduced the series, but I think the words that Peter writes at the end of 1 Peter chapter 1 are are so vitally important for us today. He writes this in verse 24, all flesh, all life outside of God is like grass and all its glory, whatever we achieve in our own strength is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fail or fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And, and I think we're in a time, not just for this church, but for the church in general. We're at a time for the church in general in this nation where the eternal word of God that is breathed out by the power of the Holy Spirit that, 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 that releases this resurrection life in Jesus is, is something we are desperately after. In the midst of trial and hardship and difficulty and struggling through a faith journey or, or, or coming face to face with some of the issues in our nation that cause us to be unsettled. And this is the very thing that Peter is doing in this particular letter to a series of churches that are facing persecution. He's writing to release and, and, and encourage them with the word of the Lord. It's the very thing he's doing. And so we're going to pick up the story. We're going to pick up his letter in the second chapter, and we're going to start off by looking at the first three verses. So he continues with his exhortation and his encouragement to these churches. Verse 1, 2, and 3, therefore, he says, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Whenever I was taught, one of the first lessons I remember being taught as a soon-to-be preacher or growing preacher was whenever you see the word therefore, you've got to ask the question, what is it therefore? What is the context? What is the reason that Paul or Peter or the writer is using the word therefore? And the context in, in, in this particular book is this incredible gospel that Peter has introduced us to or reminded us of in the first chapter. This amazing gospel, it's the, it's the gospel that declares that we are chosen by God the Father, that we have been known for all eternity by God for such a time as this. It's the gospel for which we have been set apart by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and we've been set apart for the particular purpose of having relationship with Jesus Christ, a relationship that is characterized by love and trust and obedience. 
It's the gospel by which we are made alive, by which we are born again into a living hope. And we, and we come to understand the reality of for every one of us who have said yes to Jesus, we are placed in Jesus, and Jesus, the Bible says, is in God. That's how secure your and my salvation is. It's the gospel that has given us access to an indescribable and incredible inheritance that God promises to, to, to secure and hold on, to, uh, hold on for us in heaven, and, and He pr- holds us in preparation for it. It's the gospel that comes with the tangible experience of grace and peace in abundance. I love how Peter starts his letter, grace and peace be yours in abundance. That's the gospel. The gospel is is the gospel of grace and peace. And with it comes this glorious and inexpressible joy, even though we go through hard and difficult times. It's the gospel that urges us by God's grace to live in a way that we become more and more like Jesus. As James taught last week, to, to live holy just as God is holy. And it causes us to live in a countercultural way. A way in which we seem at times to be strangers in the world. In First Peter chapter one verse twelve, it's, Peter says it's the gospel that the angels long to look upon. Think about that for a moment. Think about what the angels are looking upon, moment upon moment upon moment for all eternity. And then Peter writes, they long to look upon the magnificence of the gospel. That's how powerful this gospel is. That's how radical this gospel is. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that just with our kids, those of us who have, have kids, one of the first things we drum into them is, is remember your name and know your address and remember mom or dad's cell phone number. It's something we constantly drum into them because if they ever were to get lost, they need to know who they are and they need to know where they live. And what Peter is saying to us is exactly the same thing in a spiritual context. He's driving home the reality of the gospel, the reality of who we are in Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. And the reason he's doing this is because when we face difficult times, when we face opposition, when we face trial and struggle and hardship, they have the habit of causing us to become disorientated. And we need to remember constantly who we are and what Jesus has done. Now, Peter does this pretty much from the beginning of chapter 1 all the way through to the end of the section we're looking at today, chapter 2, verse 10. Those chapter and a half, Peter is essentially laying that foundation of this is who you are, and this is what Jesus has done. This is who you are, and this is what Jesus has done. And occasionally, he inputs a little bit of application. Don't turn there, but in, first, uh, in chapter 1, verse 22, this is one of those little application moments that Peter brings. He says, love each other deeply from the heart. Love each other deeply from the heart. James last week spoke about God being uh, holy, and we are called to live, ho- live a holy life just as God is holy. But you see, holy sounds, sounds wonderful, but it's, it can very easily become theoretical, You know, what does it mean to live holy? What does it mean to be a holy person? Well, Peter gives holiness arms and legs by saying, love one another deeply. Love each other from the heart. And and he explains in verse 1, 2, and 3 of the second chapter what loving each other like, what it actually looks like. 
He says this, he says, love that is deep and from the heart is free from malice. It doesn't hold grudges or hurtful attitudes towards others. Does that describe your love for one another? It's free from deceit. It's free from pretense and dishonesty. It's free from saying one thing in your heart, but you actually mean the exact opposite. Does that describe the way you love one another? It's free from hypocrisy. It's free from this outward show of warmth or love that isn't real. Does that describe the way that you love one another? It's free from envy and any kind of jealousy as a result of comparison. Does that describe the way you love one another? It's free from slander. It's free from speaking badly of others to others. Does that describe the way you love one another? You see, that's the thing that Peter is driving home in these first three verses, that we are to love each other deeply from the heart. Those kinds of attitudes that I spoke of earlier, malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, those are, are, like, are like suppressants uh, for our spiritual appetite. They, they, they hinder our ability to, to hunger after and desire God, Jesus, and his kingdom. If we live with malice and deceit and envy, they they stunt our spiritual growth. He says in these verses, in verse 2, that instead we need to be like these newborn babies that crave pure spiritual milk. A more accurate translation is to crave the the pure milk of God's word. This this desire to, to hear the voice of Jesus spoken into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Friends, that's how we grow up in salvation. This, this hunger for the word of God. Remember what Jesus says in Matthew chapter four as the devil attacks him. He says, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Notice he says every word. God doesn't waste words. Every word that God speaks is a word that we can hold on to and we can allow it to nourish us so that we can grow up in our salvation. I want you to notice that that what Peter says is he doesn't say we grow up into our salvation. We grow up in our salvation. Growing up into our salvation gives the impression like it's something we don't have, but when we grow up, we achieve it. That's not salvation. Salvation is we have been given Jesus and we grow up in him. My family struggled financially when I was growing up, and one of the habits my mother had was to buy clothes that were always two sizes too big. I wore baggy clothes, baggy shirts, and big big shoes. I was like a, a clown walking around with these oversized clothes, but I mean, it was what she was trying to do to save money. Those clothes were mine, but I had to grow up in them. I had to fill them out. And that's exactly what salvation is, friends. The Bible teaches we have been clothed in Jesus. And part of this outworking our salvation, as Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1, I think it is, part of this outworking our salvation is growing up in the person of Jesus. We're becoming who we already are. That's one of the great teachings of Scripture. We're becoming who we already are. Anyone who's married here knows this to be true. When you say I do to your husband or to your wife, you become a husband or a wife. But you're not the husband or wife that you will become as you grow up into the reality of who you already are. 
And that's what it means to be a, a Christian, friends. We're not earning our salvation. We're simply becoming the people we already are. And this, this way of living, this desire to live this way is something that is within us. Why? Because we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We want to live this way. We, we, we tasted and seen that God is gracious and he's given us the Holy Spirit and he's given us Jesus. He's, he's loving and he's, and he's forgiving. We've, we, we've nourished ourselves on the reality of God. You see, friends, this is so important to understand. Christianity is not a list of do's and don'ts. Christianity is growing into the reality of who you are in Jesus and what Jesus has done for you. It's adjusting your life to this new reality. Uh, Forgive me, I've used this illustration before, but I think it describes it so powerfully. If you travel to another nation and there's a six or seven hour time difference, you can be stubborn and live on American time, but you'll be seven hours late for everything and you'll be sleeping in the middle of the day. When you get to a new nation, one of the first things you do is you adjust your watch to the new reality of where you're living. Now, initially, it takes some time to get used to it, doesn't it? You wake up the next morning, and it still feels like the middle of the night. But by day seven or eight, you're beginning to adjust to the new reality. And that's what Christianity is. We're making the choice not to live in our old ways, but we're making the choice to live according to this new reality of what it means to be in Jesus. Peter gets very practical in chapter 2, verse 11. And I want to just ask you to look there. It'll come up on the screen behind me, but you'll see where I'm going with this. In chapter 2, verse 11, I'm actually going to preach it just uh, for two minutes, James's message for next week. But, next, but in chapter 2, verse 11, <laughs> Peter, what, what Peter is doing is he's saying, all right, I want to show you practically what it looks like to live as a follower of Jesus in the face of hostility and hardship and difficulty. And he says this in verse 11, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. My understanding on the day that God visits us is not the day that Jesus returns, but the day that God moves in power where people are responding to the gospel. And what Peter was essentially saying, he's saying, friends, in in a world in which people are watching and even falsely accusing you, live in such a way so as your testimony points them to Jesus. And you probably ask yourself the question, how on earth do I do that? How on earth do I do that? It, It reminds me of a verse we looked at two weeks ago where there was a similar at first glance response when we kind of looked at the verse and we said, how on earth do we do that? Do you remember First Peter chapter 1, verse 6? He says this, Peter writes, In all of this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you will have, to have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. What Peter is saying in First Peter chapter 1, verse 6 is, is not you will suffer now, but one day you will rejoice, or you can rejoice now because you used to suffer. What he's saying is, in the midst of suffering, you can now greatly rejoice. And last two weeks ago, we asked the question, how is that possible? It's possible because we are not born, our hope is not in circumstance. Our hope is in Jesus, the living hope. So how do we... Uh, 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 how, 
How do we rejoice through, through while suffering greatly? We are born again into a living hope. How do we live such good lives in the face of opposition? We come to Jesus, the living stone. You see, Jesus is both our living hope and he's our living stone. Let's read verse four together. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a priesthood, a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, see I have laid a stone, see I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, and a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy mercy. We learned a couple of weeks ago when Mark was preaching that Mark absolutely loves doors. Do you remember that? Uh, remember we learned that about Mark a few weeks ago? Mark Nelson loves doors. Well, I absolutely love brick buildings that are built in the city. Can you throw that uh, picture up, Bree, if you don't mind? I absolutely love buildings in the city, old buildings that are built by bricks. So I want to ask you a question. It's not a trick question. It's real simple. Which catches your attention more, this brick that I'm holding in my hand or this in, those incredible buildings over there? I mean, of course, it's, it's not this. I mean, you walk past these probably 20 times a day and you take no notice of this whatsoever. But when you walk past something as magnificent as that, you think, oh my goodness, that architect, that, that builder, how incredible is that? By the way, I would love our church to look something like, like that, just a little request <laughs> Unto the Lord, I hope our trustee hears what, uh, as we pray this in Jesus' name. But, uh, <laughs> but I mean, you, you, you see this and you're like, oh my goodness. And this is the point that, Pe- that Peter is making. The point that Peter is making is there's really nothing very impressive or very attractive about you and I being in Jesus as these isolated individuals like this brick. You see, what makes, what, 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 what makes the work of God significant is when God brings these bricks together, these living stones together, to build something that looks like that, to build something that is that magnificent. The church becomes like a beautiful building. I want to emphasize, the church is not a building. The church becomes like a beautiful building. It's the metaphor that he is using. And there's three parts to this. Firstly, the, the, the building is beautiful when it is built on Jesus, the living stone. Secondly, we like, become like Jesus. We are the living stones that God uses to build this building. And thirdly, together with one another, built on the person of Jesus Christ, we become this temple that houses the very presence of God. God is uniquely manifest among his people where his people gather in the name of his son. 
We're going to have a look at those three things real quickly. Firstly, Jesus is the living stone. That's what verse 4 tells us. Jesus is the living stone. So the metaphor that Peter was creating is ancient architecture. And in ancient architecture, they would, they would uh, b- uh, 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 um, not build, they would, they would kind of, what's the word? Uh, my mind has completely gone blank. They would create this cornerstone. Construct, thank you. That's the word I was looking for. They would construct this cornerstone and they would place this cornerstone at, at the prominent points of the building, and the rest of the building would take on the form of the cornerstone. The essential principle is, is, is this. Whatever the cornerstone was, the building became. Consider that for your own life. Whatever the cornerstone is, the building becomes. Whatever the cornerstone is in our lives, our lives become. The cornerstone was critically important, and a couple of aspects about the cornerstone. Firstly, it was the, it was the preeminent stone in the building. It was the first stone to be laid. It was a perfectly cut stone. A significant amount of time was taken to, to, to cut the stone. It was without defect. The stone was the strongest stone of all. It had absolute structural integrity in order to carry the weight of the rest of the building. And therefore, for all of those reasons, it was the most precious and most valuable stone. And Peter is simply saying, that's who Jesus is. He is the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. Secondly, he goes on to say, we are living stones too. We become like Jesus. We, if you remember earlier on, I said we grow, we grow up in the person of Jesus. We become living stones too when we come to Jesus. That's what verse 4 and 5 tells us. But we have to ask the question, what does it mean to come to Jesus? I think verse 6 answers that question. Verse 6 says, The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. You see, to come to Jesus, to become like him, to become the living stone just as he is the living stone means to trust in Jesus, means to make Jesus the cornerstone of every area of your life. His foundation must be your foundation in every area. Jesus tells the parable in Luke chapter 6 of the wise and foolish builder. And the difference between the wise and foolish builder wasn't the fact of the storms. Every single one of us faced storms. Some of you are in some of the most difficult storms you've ever faced before. The difference between the wise and the foolish builder was they both heard the word of God, but only the wise builder put it into action. I think when we face trials, when we face storms, when we face difficulties, We ask the wrong questions. Often the question we ask in the midst of a storm is this, where is the storm coming from and when is it going to end? When in fact the question we should be asking is, why is my life feeling so vulnerable? What areas of my life have I not built on the foundation or cornerstone that is Jesus Christ? You see, if we approach storms correctly, and they're difficult, I'm I'm not saying they're not hard, but if we approach them correctly, There is so much we can learn about ourselves and learn about God through them. My biggest struggle with faith is the fear of disappointment. That's my biggest struggle with a life of faith. I'm I'm scared to be disappointed. 
And sometimes that fear of disappointment has held me back from trusting God. When I read a verse like, he who trusts in the Lord will never be put to shame, if I'm honest, I find that a challenge. But one thing that God is teaching me is out of a verse in Psalm, chapter, in Psalm 18, which says this, you broaden the path beneath my feet. You see, trusting in Jesus is not the guarantee of a roadmap. Trusting in Jesus means that he will be with us every single step of the way. Through difficulty and through victory. Through breakthrough and through seasons of hardship. It's not a roadmap, but it's the promise of his presence every single step of the way. So Jesus is the living stone And we are living stones too when we trust in him. But thirdly, God brings us together to become this dwelling for his presence. Look at verse five. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. And then Peter does, if you're an English teacher or love love English, uh, this is the worst thing he does. In the middle of a sentence, he mixes his metaphors. He, He goes from you're a living stone to suddenly you're priests in the house of God. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. If you know the Old Testament, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you'll know that there was a high priest who was from the tribe of Judah who once a year or once every so often on religious festivals would would be given access into God's presence. But that was never God's intent. God's intent was for his people to be a kingdom of priests. Exodus chapter 19 tells us that. But because of Israel's hard-heartedness, God wasn't able to do that until Jesus came and gave birth to the New Testament church. And what Peter is saying is that as living stones that come together to form this house that, that in which God dwells, you and I are like those Old Testament priests, but we are New Testament priests able to access the presence of God. The greatest gift that you and I are given as New Testament priests is that we have the right of access. As Americans, we love the Bill of Rights, and rightly so. Can I say perhaps, and this is a conversation for another time, but there are one or two that need to be readjusted, but we'll talk about that later. But, but we, we rightly so love the Bill of Rights because they, they give us freedoms and liberties that, we, that, that are ours. But unless we exercise the rights that that that, that bill has created for us, that bill of rights is nothing but words on a page. And can I say, friends, as New Testament priests, we have been given the greatest privilege and greatest right of all. We have been given the right of access into the presence of God. But unless we exercise that right, it is absolutely meaningless. And that's not God's intent. What gives us this right of access? Can I say it is nothing subjective. Nothing subjective like how well have you behaved? How much of your Bible have you read? Or how much have you prayed? Because if you tell me that you are accessing God's presence because you read the Bible for an hour yesterday, I will answer, is an hour enough? Why not an hour and a half? Or if you come to me and say, well, I'm accessing God's presence because, because I prayed for 45 minutes, I will say, is 45 minutes enough? 
We can never access the presence of God on the basis of something subjective like our behavior. We can never access the presence of God on the basis of something subjective like how we feel. Because how many of us feel like accessing God's presence or feel like we deserve to access God's presence every moment of every day? What gives us access into the presence of God is the objective fact and reality of what Jesus Christ has done for us. His death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, his blood that has washed us clean. We are clothed in Jesus and that gives us access any moment of any day, irrespective of how you behaved or how you feel, into the very presence of the Lord Almighty. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us that. Since we have reason for confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way through his body, let us draw near with full assurance. We can pray, Father, thank you that I don't come to you today on the back of yesterday. We never pray in the name of yesterday. We pray in the name of Jesus. Father, thank you that I don't come on the back of yesterday, good or bad. Thank you, Father, that I don't come on the basis of how I feel, because often, Lord, I don't feel like I'm worthy of coming into your presence. Father, I thank you that I am clothed in your Son, and on that basis, your word says, I can enter your gates with thanksgiving and your courts with praise. And often, friends, when we do that, irrespective of how we feel, you'll notice your feeling will begin to change. You begin praying on the, back, on the back of who you are in Jesus, that feeling of apathy and a lack of desire to enter God's presence, I guarantee will change as you begin to access on the basis of what Jesus has done. And that's what Hebrews 4 tells us. We come into God's presence and we find mercy and grace. Mercy for the, for the foolish mistakes of yesterday. Grace for the strength to live according to his will today. So how do we live like, Jesus, like God's royal priesthood in the face of trials and hardship? How do we navigate the ups and downs of a life of faith? How do we avoid the fear of possible disappointment when what God is calling us to seems unlikely or even impossible? How do we stand sure and secure when events in our city or nation try to shake us and we know that others are watching. I'm going to give you four quick things to end. And I want, us, I want this to be an opportunity for ministry. So I'm going to ask if you wouldn't mind just closing your eyes. If you feel comfortable to do that. I don't want these to be application points so much as opportunity for the Holy Spirit just to begin to move in our hearts and lives this morning. If you can just close your eyes for a moment. this incredible privilege that we have to access the presence of God. How do we live like royal priests? How do we stand sure and secure? How do we navigate the ups and downs of a life of faith? Firstly, acknowledge and declare that Jesus is the living stone. Can you do that in your heart this morning? Just begin to thank Jesus that he is the living stone. Declare that. Where you are seated, Jesus, I declare that you are the living stone. You are the foundation on which I desire to build my life. Maybe you're here today and you can't say that. Maybe you're here today and verse 7 of 1 Peter chapter 2 tells us that to those who believe, the cornerstone is precious. I want to ask you today, is Jesus precious to you? 
Have you made that declaration, that moment where you have said, Jesus, I want to build my life on the foundation that is you? If you've never accepted Jesus into your heart as Lord and Savior, if you've never received the free gift that is the gospel, I want to invite you this morning, right where you are seated, to say, Jesus, would you be my cornerstone? Would you be my rock? Would you be the foundation on which I live? Firstly, acknowledge that he is the living stone. Secondly, trust in him. Make sure that his foundation is your foundation in every area of your life. As you are seated here today, and I just encourage you to enjoy the presence of God. As you are seated here today, and perhaps you are going through a storm or a difficulty or a trial or a hardship, can I invite you to ask the Lord right now, Lord, is there anything you want to show me through this? Is there any area of my life that I haven't surrendered to you? Is there any area of my life that is not built on the foundation, the sure foundation that is you? Lord, I want to trust in you. I want to build on you. Would you help me to do that? Acknowledge that Jesus is the living stone. Trust in him. Thirdly, I want to say exercise the right you have to access his presence. And I want to ask you, as you are seated, I want you to exercise that right right now. No matter how you feel, no matter what kind of week you've had, just where you are seated, begin to thank God for the reality of who you are in Jesus. Begin to thank him that you have access into his presence to receive mercy and grace in your time of need, Hebrews chapter 4 says. A number of you are going through hardships, and I know that you have a time of need. And this is an opportunity for you to receive mercy and grace. Father, I pray a release of your mercy, a tangible experience of your mercy, where we have messed up, Lord, where we know that we have have fallen short of what you've called us to, where we've struggled to believe, where our hearts have grown hard, we ask for your mercy. We thank you for your mercy. And Lord, we pray for a release of your grace for today, grace for tomorrow, grace for business situations grace for provision, grace for healing, grace for relational reconciliation, grace for wisdom and insight in making tough decisions. I pray, Holy Spirit, come. Fill us with your grace. Fill us with your grace. Your grace that is abundant. Your grace that comes with peace. Thank you, Lord. And then lastly, I want to say, I want to encourage us as a church family, remind each other of the access that we have into God's presence. I need help remembering this. 
And so I know you need help remembering this. Remind each other that we are together New Testament priests given the right of access into the very presence of God because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Thank you, Lord.